Well, we're going to get into the Word of God today. Malachi chapter 2 is where we're going today. And we're going to continue this series titled Unblemished. Just examining some of Israel's past, examining ourselves in light of that, because all of Scripture is a great way for us to reflect and to look into the mirror of what the Spirit wants to say to us. And so uh, last week we completed chapter 1 of Malachi. Uh, in, we've done that in two sessions and uh, we read a lot about God critiquing the approach to Israel's sacrificial system at that time. Uh, they were not bringing the quality of sacrifice that was required, and they're bringing, uh, they're being called cheats, basically, for trying to bring, sneak in less than their best, and we saw examples of that last time. And uh, we see in that setting that God is interacting with their context of gathered worship and finding that dulled down and cheapened. And now we looked at Christ as the fulfillment of the sacrificial things, um, but we still walk in the understanding that that serving the Lord is an act of worship. Um, And as such, we should expect that the Lord himself, if we're offering that to him, then he's going to take stock of that. He's going to inspect that. He's going to be looking at the heart and the motive behind the things that we call worship in life. If, If he's the recipient... It's his right to do that. I briefly explained last week that worship is a multi-layered expression. Um, I would add to that today by describing worship as a series of both moments and movements. That's That's the sort of phrase I think of when I think about worship. The elements of song, prayer, reflection, fellowship, uh, offering and communion this morning. These were carefully planned out and will be, you know, for the rest of the day, carefully planned out moments of worship. They're moments to help us express in the moment our worship to God. I appreciate the way the communion table is laid out. Uh, I love how Rod does it, how he, he brings out the, uh, you know, sort of makes us stop and think in different ways and, and gives pause between the elements and stuff like that. That was a good way to do it this morning. These are moments for us to think and to focus, to concentrate our time on what God has done for us, what Jesus has done for us. But the minute we walk out of here, the rest of our life is a constant, ongoing movement of worship. It's an event and it's a lifestyle. Scripture tells us that the lifestyle of worship is our only reasonable response to the transforming work of God in our lives. So if a lifetime of worship is sacrificial in nature, then it can't at the same time be cheaply lived out. We talk talk about grace and we talk about not having cheap grace. I believe in that. I I believe that grace is far reaching than just this, well, Jesus reached out to me, I prayed a prayer, I'm saved, I don't go to hell no more. There, grace, done and dusted. That is the very beginning of the story of grace in our lives. Grace equips us for the life of living sacrifice that comes after that in Jesus. We also had a good look at, what, at the God that we are worshipping. There were four key ways that God reveals himself in chapter 1. We've got the idea of him as a father, as a master, as a great king, and the Lord Almighty, the captain of the Lord's host. 
And these images call for various responses to God in our lifestyle of worship, and they're all very powerful when we grasp them. That's all I'm going to say about that now. We've got podcasts, we've got Spotify, we've got iTunes. You can tune in any way you, you like, and you can pick those up later on. But for now, we're going to, now that I've sort of given you time, we're going to read just the first nine verses of chapter 2 today and have a look at those together. So let's start with verse 1, and let's read these together now. Verse 1. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this, this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. In case we haven't noticed yet, God is turning his attention directly towards the priesthood at this time. This is the spiritual leadership of the church nation of Israel. There's a sense of real sadness in God's words in all this. Because the priesthood was installed with a truly noble calling in their lives. And it was built on a foundation of great heritage. This heritage actually started in grace. The Israelite tribe of Levi was chosen by God to be the family of, of priesthood for the, for the nation. The patriarch of that family is Levi. He's one of Jacob's sons. He was a hot-headed and violent sort of guy, though. It's quite funny. He's shown to us in Genesis as someone willing to start small wars with people in whom he saw injustice. And he often had little regard for the consequences and how he did that. It's interesting to note that Moses is born into that tribe. He's the great-grandson of Levi. And his first major scriptural accomplishment is to kill a fella under the same rules as his, as his granddad. And then he's called back to Egypt to lead his whole nation after 40 years in the wilderness, working himself out. The heart of Levi seemed to be in the right place, where injustice on earth met with the disapproval of God. It seems that Levi and later his descendants would be all over it. 
That's a great outlook just for a priesthood right there. If there is injustice in the world and God is seeing that and his heart is broken over it, then the priesthood step in and actually bridge that gap. The family of Levi hit their stride and found their calling in the wilderness. When Israel was released from slavery, the Levitical family took responsibility for keeping out of that space. There was a time, like most believers, a time of crisis. Their time of reckoning and coming of age happens in Exodus 32. This is after Aaron, you know, Moses' brother, one of the other Levites, makes a golden calf to worship while Moses is up the hill getting the Ten Commandments. We read there that it's actually the rest of the Levite tribe who took Moses' side. And they ended up wielding the sort of judgment on a people who were fast rejecting God and worshipping something else. To understand this sort of judgment, we have to take into account the truly wicked ways the pagan deities we worshipped. And, and, and particularly in comparison to the way God was calling for worship to be done in his name, in his nation. If we go over to Numbers 25, we see that there is this willingness to wield that unpalatable sword still continuing. This time, Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, he, took, he takes charge when the nation has yet another crisis of faith going on in their midst. In this particular instance, a bunch of Moabite women, neighboring women, snuck into the camp and caused some of the men to worship their fertility god through sexual seduction. They ended up having a feast and an orgy to this god, and one of the dumb Jewish fellas brought his new girlfriend right into the middle of church, bringing that behavior with him. It was at this point that this young Levite priest takes matters into his own hands and, and deals harshly with this newly formed couple and the 24,000 other people who were of the same mind. So in response, God makes the covenant of peace that is referred to in Malachi. Um, and it's found in Numbers 25. It reads this way. Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. In the wilderness, the Levites were given a specific task and they were set up a specific way. They would not eventually have it a parcel of land in Canaan like the, the other tribes. Instead, they, were, they would inhabit cities throughout the nation um, that the other tribes would build and finance. They would be set apart for the priesthood. This would be a lasting profession in that nation and a lasting profession in that family. The rest of the church nation would provide their upkeep so that they could dedicate their lives to that ministry calling. In Numbers chapter 1, we see that they would be responsible for the care of the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And they would be responsible to uphold and preserve the covenantal law. In Numbers 25, the selection criteria for the role is there too. The, the Levite priest was commended for being zealous for the honor of his God. 
and also zealous to see their people receive their atonement and their reconciliation with God also. Zealous for God, zealous for atonement and reconciliation. But when we fast forward to 460 BC, to Malachi's time, to the passage of the morning we've just read, the, the Levitical order is present. But the people have not stayed out of slavery like they should have. They've had to go and relearn the lessons of Egypt and again in Babylon. And now that they're out, the priests are supposed to be doing their job in keeping these people out of slavery yet again. But unlike Aaron and Moses and Phinehas, we find that the Levitical family is now facilitating sin in their church nation. They're not facilitating true worship and sacrifice as we saw last week. They were just they'd given up asking questions. They were not holding people to account. They were allowing diseased animals to come into the sacrifices. They just, you know, even if they looked good on the outside, there were no questions going, anything we should know, son? And we read that they're not facilitating true teaching anymore either. There's a hypocrisy in their personal expression. There's partiality in their ministry. Farmer Joe got a free pass because the priests were more concerned about how things looked on the outside and had little regard for the precepts of God anymore. It's almost like they got to this mindset of why worry about the lives and their eternal status of these people? when it's hard enough just to get them in the doors in the first place. It really sounds sad as to where these guys ended up, how far they had fallen. Deuteronomy 33, we read that Moses blesses the Levites and declares them to be the ones who will teach the precepts of God to the whole nation and be intercessors on behalf of the people. They'd be on their knees for their nation. They'd be, they would be highly concerned with the way God's values and God's word would impact on their nation. Moses said that this tribe would guard the covenant and law even at the expense of their own comfort and their family. They're given the call to be the givers of rulings to the people who required it. Haggai 2 tells us that ruling and judgment of moral law was given out by the priests. In Deuteronomy 1 and 16, this sort of judgment was to be completely impartial. There was no bribes, there was no twisting of words to suit one party over the other. Just the truth, just the unadulterated law of God to drive judgment both small and great. Not one standard for one and not the other. In Deuteronomy 24, those given the right to judge this way were told to be especially mindful of the foreigners, the widows, the fatherless, and ensure they get justice also, particularly. Deuteronomy 10 tells us the reason. It's because it's the way God operates himself. If you want to represent God, you need to know what he's about and live lives that reflect him. 
The priesthood that Malachi is addressing is anything but these things. They're too tired to fight a complacent people. Too tired, couldn't be bothered, not motivated to call these people to account anymore. Too irreverent to adhere to proper devotion. Too concerned about their social standing to call things down the middle and lead with justice. Too hypocritical to lead by example in a way that the people admired. And instead of admiration, the people of the church nation are simply laughing at them. Not seeing the point of following the lead of God's messengers when these guys weren't living any better than they were. The rest of the congregation is supposed to see these people as the reference point of God's law, but instead they're seeing deliberate lawbreakers themselves. There's some um, fuzz coming through this um, foldback. Could we just take that out? Thank you. In the face of all this, we see that the Lord is going to take matters into his own hands. It's quite ominous. Verse 3 shows us some really key things that are going to take place. God's going to go, I am stepping in. And we read first that the descendants of these priests are going to be cut off. This means that the family lines and the work of the priesthood are going to be ceased because the Lord wants people in priesthood who will live lives worthy of their calling. Second, the current line of priests are actually going to be forced out of their jobs by God. He says, I'm going to smear dung on your faces. It's actually the refuse that came with the sacrifices. There was a part of the sacrifice that was offered, and there's another part that was kind of like taken into a bag, taken out of the camp, and burnt. It was the unclean offal of the beast. God said, I don't want you to even bring that near me. Get it out. And anyone who touches that stuff is going to be unclean for a week. Priests weren't supposed to be dealing with that stuff. And God says, I'm going to take that offal and I'm going to go and I'm going to force you out of your job. The idea of doing this is God taking charge of the priesthood and stopping them from being in a position to minister before him. It would be better for them, safer for them, that they would not even try to minister and heap more judgment upon themselves. If they came to God, God is going, I'm already seeing you as unclean. You come in and you think you're going to ignore my judgment of you. I'm going to actually make you further unclean just to make sure that people see your state and get you out of here. Because if you keep offering to me in that way, I'm going to wield my judgment on you. This is an act of grace. God is actually acting in grace here. By making them ritually unclean for the temple, he's actually going, get out of this. So I actually don't judge you even further. It's actually an act of grace on the priesthood that God is extending here. Now, was all priesthood corrupt and about to stop? Not quite. In a few verses' time, we're going to see that God actually does have something planned for priesthood going forward. I, I believe that's a section that Chris Spencer's got in a couple of weeks' time. There is a covenant with the Levites that existed from Numbers 25. God is faithful to his promises, even if man is not. I mean, we've got the communion table to remind us of that every month too, don't we? 
But the people ministering right at this point were in danger of first becoming irrelevant for the people. And more importantly, incompetent in the eyes of God. As we come to just the second chapter of Malachi, we're starting to understand that this is actually crunch time for the church nation of Israel at this time and its ministers. Now we've got to get back to us. As I read this, I see the third blemish of Israel. A completely unengaged and powerless priesthood that has lost its way and forgotten its call. Now today, you and I can actually interact with this two different ways. We are living in a time where the church leaders and even entire movements are becoming a bit of a laughing stock in certain circles. Some entire movements have completely lost their way in living out the mission of God on this planet. They're a social club, they're no longer a church. Other things are beginning to lose their way or show or go down paths that God is not really ordaining. The, 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 the prosperity preacher movement is one of those key things. People promising the world in return for generous offerings and gifts. There's a movement that will stand for nothing and fall for anything. The universalist movement is gaining momentum. Theologians and preachers of many backgrounds now are looking for ways to soften the blow of God's judgment often by linguistic hair-splitting and almost humanizing the holy God, reducing God down to human reason going, well, in my human thinking about justice and what is right and wrong, well, God can't do all those things. He can't judge that sort of way. Sadly, the results of the Royal Commission has added so much pressure to the entire church community now. A number of smaller congregations in this country are likely to shut their doors in the next few years, simply because they actually can't keep up with the red tape and pay the insurance premiums that now sit over every church. If the church took a proper look at itself and got transparent decades ago, this actually could have been avoided. I'm saddened in a big way now by the regular public falls of pastors all over the Western church. It used to be just those ones, those televangelists getting caught with you know, sexual misconduct, but now, my goodness, just proud and pride and arrogance has buried a number of pastors in recent years. People self-medicating with alcohol, adult entertainment, affairs, financial misappropriation, and in the last few years, even high-profile leaders committing suicide. People are on a destructive path in ministry in Western church. Surely there's a better way. When we go to Titus, Paul gives us a contrast to what good godly leadership looks like compared with the dodgy variety. It goes a bit like this. Let's just read this through a bit. Paul goes, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be, the, they will be sound in the faith and pay no attention to Jewish myth or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Wonderful description. <laughs> In Malachi, the priesthood are being harshly judged by God only a few decades after being reinstated. In Titus, it's actually taken about half that time for a congregation to get to the same dangerous place. It's unfinished business in that place, place there. Friends, in 2020, there's never been a more urgent time to get the area of church leadership right. The modern form of priesthood is under scrutiny from the world, what the world understands the priesthood to look like, I will say. The church is taking a good hard look at that. The world is watching it carefully, and I believe God himself is watching carefully how that works. You look at Revelation 1, God moves among the lampstands and he also inspects the stars, the messengers, as well as the church. But I'm actually going to go a little bit broader with you guys today as well. See, last week we could have just looked at worship based on Sunday morning experience, but true worship extends beyond that, right? There's a bigger picture of the worship. There's a bigger picture of the priesthood too. You see, I could simply be retelling my job description or going, hey, we've got a handful of elders and church leadership here, just look to them, make sure they're doing their job. Part of that's true, but again, that's only part of the story. It's actually a small part. We have a New Testament perspective and distinction which ancient Israel didn't have. This distinction calls for every believer in the church to ponder their place before God based on the text we've looked at today. And it's a distinction that we as Baptists have been the modern day champions of. 1 Peter 2 gives us one glimpse of this. You are a chosen people, together a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
This priesthood extends to all believers. The call to be on our knees for the nation is not just my job, it's yours. The call to, to be as zealous for God, as, 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 to be zealous for God, that, the way that the priests were in, in Leviticus and, and, and the way they were through the Old Testament, that's for us to do too. The call to be zealous for the people finding their reconciliation, finding their atonement, that falls on all of us. The willingness to hold to instruction, the wilderness, the willingness to bring instruction, to speak correction, to, to, to be agents of mercy, to speak impartially. These are all of our roles. It's one thing to be a priesthood of all believers when it's the good stuff, like when we exercise our rights in a congregational government setting. You know, when we've got the right to interact with all levels of Baptist gatherings, when we have the, the right to elect leaders and call them to account. When we have the right to, or the ability to direct the flow and the focus of the church, to hire, fire, elect, appoint, buy, sell, do all those other cool things that, that a church gathered meeting can do. And friends, I will personally defend all those rights. I believe strongly in the congregational government system. And I thank God that there is a wealth of wise counsel in our congregation that can gather and help make those decisions and gather as the mind of Christ because top-down leadership just does not sit well with me at all. But it's another matter altogether when it comes to our responsibilities. We as a royal priesthood have a number of these to carry out, friends. As I've already said, to be teachers and disciple makers, to be guardians of impartial justice and mercy, to proclaim our message of the covenant. You know, we can often relegate those responsibilities to the figurehead, not the whole. There is ordained and even employed church leadership in the New Testament. And I believe that's pivotal to a church being effective and on track, but this leadership, this figurehead stuff, actually exists to empower the whole so that the whole performs its effective priestly duty. So as we consider the royal priesthood and as we consider the word of God first spoken in 460 BC and revisited in 2020, let us ask some questions of the priesthood of which we are all a part. Let's reflect together. One, are we faithful messengers and adherents to the new covenant extended to us? God is a God of covenant. Israel had a blood covenant with Abraham to raise up a people. The priesthood had a covenant with the tribe of Levi, and this involved the blood which came from righteous judgment. We have the blood covenant of the cross, which we remembered today. We're to be messengers of the covenant keeping God. Are we committed to true instruction? Both receiving it and living it, as well as proclaiming and teaching it. See, it is not good enough to simply call yourself a Christian who prayed a prayer one day 
and left your growth there. The Christian is called to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. Someone who is consistently and constantly being instructed by the Spirit, by Jesus himself, in the space of an accountable community. If we just prayed a prayer one day, said, now I got saved and that's it, I don't go to hell no more, actually, you're not saved. If you don't become a disciple, you prayed a prayer one day, that's all you did. Those who do the will of the Father are the disciples. Are we committed to true instruction? To grow in instruction? To know what we need to know? To, to grow in the things Jesus wants to show us and teach us? And because we're disciple makers, are we committed to teaching it? Are we committed and zealous about the issue of injustice around us? Is our judgment call on things centered on the justice of God? Are we preserving knowledge? We've got all our devices. We've got, our, we've got the Bible in a million different translations and languages in our lap all the time. And yet we can also be quite illiterate at it too. Are we all being faithful to gain what we need to know and to communicate it onwards? Is our teaching of God's law causing people to flourish or stumble? Do we affirm people because of their perceived niceness and hoping or even pretending they're going to be fine when the cross, the only thing of hope for humanity is not being taught or applied in their life? Do we teach works over grace as a pathway to salvation? We can't be doing that. There's a danger in being too liberal and a danger in being a legalist. Neither approach honors God. Instead, it's a healthy balance of a loving God who is also holy and just. Is there a partiality in the gospel we profess? You're my friend, I don't want to offend you, so I'll tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to know. You hear in church, I'll do what it takes to keep your seat warm, even if it means diluting the gospel to make it happen. These are partiality expressions that rise up from time to time. But it's clearly not ordained conversation, right? And to the royal priesthood, is our character equal to the faith we profess? Do people scoff at our claims of faith or do they admire our claims of faith? Do we need some accountability or counsel to even address some of those things if the Lord is nudging us about that today? Friends, we are a royal priesthood called to do great things for our God. To, do, to wield great influence in our nation. To be captured by the zeal of God. To know what his heart is for the people to be deeply moved by that. To be interceding. To be instructing. To be speaking out. To be standing in the gap when we see injustice. To do all these things that the priests were always called to do. 
and to be facilitating reconciliation between the world and the God that wants to know them. Let's reflect for a moment. Let's allow the Spirit to speak to us. And let's step into that place of a powerful royal priesthood for the Lord. Let's embrace that role in our lives. Let's pray.